church while they're making their way out. You can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, where we're going to keep going in our series, our, uh, our fall series that's going to kind of take us into the spring. But we're kind of going verse by verse through Matthew chapter 5 through verse 7. And, you know, the really uh, beautiful thing, but also the really scary thing about when you navigate text verse by verse is sometimes you get to spaces that, uh, that are challenging. Sometimes you get to spaces that are fun. Sometimes you get to spaces that are very difficult to talk about. And so this morning we talk about adultery and lust, which is always a great thing to kind of lean into. We'll be, we'll, we'll be careful with it. But, you know, I, I just want to pray for us as we read the text that we would be open to how God intends to challenge us and what that looks like and how, how God wants to see that movement from within us and, and see that work out from, uh, from us. But we're going to pick up and, and I'm going to read and then we'll pray for, for our reception of God's word this morning. But Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. We're going to read together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to verse 30. It says this. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. It says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this morning. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to be challenged in the ways that you intend for us to. God, to see the things that you have for us to see. God, let it be your words and not my own. God, we just thank you for this time and all that you've given us. Lord, we love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. So right off the bat, like I said, as we read through this text, you can see that it's uh, that it can be challenging, right? It's very straightforward. It's very in our face. Uh, it's very right there as far as what it's talking about and what it's speaking to. But I believe that there's more there than just the than just the initial kind of ground level that's presented to us, you know? And, and so what we're seeing, and we kind of talked about this in the beginning last week as we kind of got into it, is that Jesus is stepping into this moment where he's beginning to teach directly on six individual laws, six individual laws, and he's bringing clarity to them in a way that goes against the way that the religious people were talking about it and the way they were presenting it, where it was very much this idea of like, it's very focused on the outward behavior. It's like you don't do this. It's the list of do's and don'ts. And you don't do this. You don't do this. You don't do this. And so Jesus is taking all of those things and he's saying, hey, listen, you've heard it said like this, but I'm telling you it's this. And so he's bringing clarity to these things that are, that are weighty, that are heavy, that have influence in our lives and that challenge us in a lot of different ways. And so he's taking these laws and he's bringing clarity to them. And so specifically... What we see here, like we, said, like we said, at a very kind of surface level, we see exactly what Jesus is saying. We know exactly what he's talking about for men and women alike. This, this experience that we have as people within the flesh. And so what I like about what Jesus is doing here is that there's a broader application that we'll see as we go, as we kind of start at the surface and then move from there. But there is a broader application. And I believe what Jesus is teaching here is he's teaching us 
how to navigate, how to face, how to deal with sin specifically, and how we deal with those things that are drawing us away from a relationship with God, that are leading us in opposite directions of where He, where he is for us, and have become a replacement, have become a, a, a holder for something greater. They've become a lesser thing that we've depended on or something that we're leaning towards. And so I believe what Jesus is showing us in this, what, I, what the text is telling us, is it's giving us some instruction on how to deal with sin. And there's two things that it instructs us to do here. And so we're going to lean into those two things this morning. The first thing is this, that Jesus teaches them, is he teaches them to name the enemy. He teaches them to name the enemy. He's very straightforward. He's very straight up. He's very clear cut to the point. And so just like we began last week when we talked about anger, he starts it the same way. He says, you have heard it was said. And so he said the same thing last week when he's talking about anger. You have heard that it was said it's wrong to murder. But he says that if you're angry with your brother or sister, you know. And so this week he says, you have heard it said. And so when he's saying this, he's reverting back to how they've learned it. Remember, we talked about this last week. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But he, he's going back to this is how you heard it. This is how you were taught it. And you know, and whether he's speaking of it from the religious education sense, like as a religious person, this is how you learned it. Or even if he's speaking of it from a familial sense, because in reality, reality, all of us are influenced by the things in our life that we're around, that we're raised with, that we're grown up with. And so in that, there's also things that were, that were kind of cultivated or kind of curated to view a certain way or to excuse a certain way or to accept a certain way. And so he's saying that, like, go back to your tradition, go back to your upbringing, go back to what you've seen around us. Because if we're honest, you know, maybe you come from a situation or a home or a place of, of, that you were raised in or grew up in that normalized some sort of sinful activity, behavior, or conversation, or, or whatever it might be. And so within that context, we can have a perception of how certain things are that are in contrary to what God has for us. And so when Jesus leans into our lives to instruct us on something, he says, listen, you've heard it said this way, or you've seen it played out this way. He says, but I'm telling you, but I say to you. So what Jesus is doing is Jesus is asserting his authority. He's asserting his authority. And just like we said last week, church, Jesus has to be the authority that we go to and that we find for the instruction on how we live and act and react in our lives. And so he's telling us this morning, but I say to you, but I say to you, I don't care what you've been taught. I don't care what your tradition says. I don't care what maybe your family taught you or what, what was communicated to you. He says, but I'm telling you this. So Jesus establishes his authority on the topic. And so this is what we have to understand and this is what we have to know. Because what Jesus is wanting them to do and where he shifts, like just like he did last week, is he wants us to focus on the reason and not the response, right? Because especially as church people, we like to, we like to focus on the activity. You know, we see people do something, act a certain way, participate in a certain way or, or react, you know, do something. Then we immediately focus on that. We're like, well, you're not supposed to do that. You can't act that way. You can't say that. You can't whatever it might be. So we're very activity, action focused when Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The place we need to settle in on, the place we need to give attention to isn't the response, but it's the reason. It's the heart. It's what's going on in here. What's being, what's being dealt with within here? Because Matthew 15, 18 even talks about this. It says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from where? From the heart. 
And he says, what comes out is what defiles a person. Listen, there's a lot of things that we take in around us. He says, but listen, what comes from the heart is what defines us. What's within us is what translates into action. And so he's telling us, he says, the issue isn't what's out here. The issue is what's in our hearts. The issue is our propensity to lean into sin, to be drawn away from a holy God. And so that's where Jesus is really spending a lot of time. And I think it's really significant out of all the things that Jesus could have talked about, the first two things he talks about, and really the only things in this context, in this kind of way that he speaks on specifically in sin and the reaction of sin, is he speaks on anger and adultery. Anger and adultery. Because I believe that if we're honest with ourselves and we evaluate the, the, maybe the, even the culture around us, that anger and adultery are at the, the basis of some of our worst decisions, Right? Some of the harshest things that we do. Some of the most life-changing decisions that we make. You know, last week we were talking about murder and anger and all these things. I mean, those are life-changing things. And then this week he's talking about adultery and how that plays into the relationship of a man and a woman. You know, those things are, are at its basis. They are at the basis of some of the most life-changing decisions that we make that affect us sinfully, that drastically change the courses of our lives. And so I believe that's why Jesus, is, is, he mentions these two. He mentions these two things specifically, anger and adultery, because he sees the weight and the gravity of those things in our lives and how they affect us. And so then he continues on and he says this, and uh, we'll be in verse 28. He says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus begins to name the enemy. That's our first thing, right? Name the enemy. And so Jesus names the enemy as the temptation of the heart and he calls it adultery. And so there's something that we have to understand about adultery. And I read this this past week and I thought this was the best way that I've seen adultery played out. Because, you know, there's a lot of ways that, especially within the church, that we've, we've created this thing of it. And we've kind of created this picture of, of how that plays out. And it's very specific. But I really like the where adultery, come, that, that word where it comes from. And this that I read this week, I just thought it brought so much clarity to it for me. So the word adultery is related to the word adulterate. Adulterate, which means to render something poorer in quality by adding another substance, typically an inferior substance. I want to read that again because I'm telling you, for that, it brought so much clarity for me. To render something poorer in quality by adding another substance, typically an inferior substance. And so typically the way we've thought about that is in the, the, the space of a relationship, which, which it absolutely applies, right? God has created this covenant between a man and a woman, and whenever there is an adulterous relationship or an adulterous activity within that, it is adding to what is already a quality product, what God has provided, what God has put together, adding to something to render it of poorer quality, and what has been added to it is of inferior quality. And so he tells us that adding, and then what that is, is, is the, the idea of this adulterate activity or this adulterate space or mindset. It's adding another substance for a pursuit of happiness, for a pursuit of comfort, for a pursuit of confidence or a pursuit of value. And the problem with this, with this mindset, is it never truly finds its satisfaction because the quality is already there. We're adding inferior substances to the quality of what God has established thinking we're going to find more satisfaction, thinking we're going to find 
more substance, thinking we're going to find more joy, and we never do. And so what it does is it constantly keeps us reaching out for, for something inferior, adding to, adding to. You know, I don't cook a whole lot. But if I cooked by taste, I can promise you that I would add to it until it was horrible because I'm just impatient and I, I just I, I'm not good with that. I got to have very specific instructions and that's the way that I have to do things. But, you know, I imagine in our relationships, we navigate it the same way. It's like and we have a very skewed view on marriage sometimes and how that relationship between a man and a woman works. And so a, a lot of times when we begin to navigate that, we enter into this space where we think, well, there's maybe some other element that I add to this particular desire that I have to bring me happiness, to bring me joy, to bring me fulfillment. And what happens is you never truly find it. And so we continue to neglect the quality of what God has given us to search outside to find the other substance. But what the adulterate is, it's it's an inferior substance adding to a quality product that begins to distort the quality of what we have. And so Jesus is speaking directly to this, and he's speaking to this in the context of how, of how it re- relates in a relationship between a man and a woman, adding another to the mix of the relationship. And that's not only a physical element. It's also, there can also be, especially because Jesus is speaking to the heart, speaking of an emotional or mental element that plays into that. So we can't limit it only to physical, that there's also a mental or emotional element to it, that if we've allowed or we're entering into these emotional mental spaces within this adulterous mindset that we're trying to find another substance to add to the quality of what we have and what's outside is going to be poorer than what's here, it's it's inferior, and then it begins to affect the quality of the relationship that is there. And so Jesus is speaking directly to that. In Proverbs 6.32, it tells us this. It says, He who commits adultery lacks sense, and who does it destroys himself or herself. Destroys. So this, this mindset of not being satisfied with what's here, beginning to render something of poor quality because we're adding an inferior product to it. We're adding an inferior substance to it. And so for a man and a woman in a relational sense, this is a vital element, Right? Within the context of a relationship, a marriage between a man and a woman, that, that adding these inferior elements is only going to distort and to cloud and to affect the growth that that unit has together, to affect the growth and the development and the, 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 the raising of children and the, the spiritual journey. It's going to cloud that up and it's going to affect that journey significantly. So Jesus understands and he knows and he's teaching for them to know like, hey, it's not so much the outward activity, but it's the inward production that's going on. He says, you have to fix that. We have to start there. It's not the reaction, but it's the reason. We have to be there and begin to see. Because church, we can't afford to add another substance to our relationships because it begins to drastically affect the quality of what's been established. You know, because the reality of it is this, and these are even things that I've had to learn even in my own personal life, is that either side of this covenant relationship that we have with our spouse Either side of the marriage covenant shouldn't have to compete with outside substances to retain the quality of what God has established. They shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have to compete. We shouldn't have to, our our, our spouses should not have to compete with outside inferior things to find that joy, to find that satisfaction, to find that fulfillment. It's there. God's established it. The quality is available. We just have to find it. 
We just have to find it there and see it. And we're going to find that when we move inwardly. But the thing is, and what I love about this, this translation and kind of this idea of looking at, at, a, at adulterate, you know, the adultery this particular way, the rendering of something poor in quality by adding another substance, typically an inferior one, is that this truth applies even separate from the relational aspect of marriage. You know, because what Jesus is really teaching on is he's teaching on the effects of sin and, and the clouding of our minds and our hearts and how we take steps forward with him and for him. And so this really applies even outside of the relational place of a marriage. But this also applies to our relational status between us and God. Because the reality is, is that, you know, and maybe we would say to ourselves, well, I don't have any issues with an adulterous relationship within the context of my marriage. Or maybe you're not married and you say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Based off of this definition of what it means to be adulterate, we can have adulterous relationships even within the context of our relationship between us and God, where we are adding substances from the outside, making the quality of our relationship with God poor because we're taking an inferior product and adding it to the relationship we have with the Holy God. So it's possible that we may be having this relationships with something outside of God these that are affecting, because for us, the elements of growth and commitment and obedience that should be present in our spiritual relationship to Christ are greatly diminished and damaged if we have an adulterous focus in our life. If we have this, if we're, there's something within the context of our life that could be a lot of different things that are getting our focus that are getting our attention, that are getting our intentions. And we see that as he continues on in verse 28. He talks about this adulterous relationship, but he says, uh, he gives it very, uh, a very specific direction and a very specific reaction. He says that if he looks at a woman with lustful intent, and so this is where it's at. This is the motivation. He talks about a lustful intent. So what does it mean to lust? You know, we've heard that that phrase and that word used a lot in a very physical sense, which it absolutely does apply. But the word lust within, it, within and of itself, it means this. It means to covet or to set the heart upon or to long for. And so that you can see how there can be application for that towards other sinful aspects of our life that aren't strictly relational or physical or sexual in nature. He's talking about it on a broad scale where we can be in an adulterous relationship with something in our lives that has a lustful intent, that we are coveting it, that we are seeking after it, that we are craving it in a way that is unhealthy for us, that is leading us into sinful spaces. You know, to lust in the physical sense between humanity is different than some other things because God has created us and set us up in a particular way. You know, because lust is even different than sexual desire in and of itself, which is lawful within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. And it is also, lust is also different, uh, different than attraction because God has made us to be drawn and to recognize beauty and what is, what, is, what is beautiful to the eye, what is eye? I mean, God has created us to be mindful of that and to recognize it. But lustful intent is different. Lustful intent, it communicates a sinful focus and a, a desire that will elicit sinful action. So lust will always lead to sin. Lustful intent 
will lead to sin because, and this is the thing, whether it's in a physical sense between people or whether it's in our individual sense with us lusting after something around us, lustful intent only cares about satisfaction to itself within the context of its driving desire. Lust's main focus is consumption. Lust's main focus is consumption. And that's, that's the sinful nature of it. That's why between human beings, if we lust after a human being, it's sinful. Why? Because the focus is consumption. And we can only consume someone or consume something if we dehumanize those people, right? That's the only way that someone can be consumed in that way is if we dehumanize them. And so that's why lust within itself is strictly about consumption, not appreciation, not care, not love. Lust does not see beauty in the object of its attention. It only sees a product of consumption. Lust only sees a product for consumption. And this is the thing that we need to know. Lust is the enemy of contentment. Lust is the enemy of contentment. And remember, starting at the, 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 the low-hanging fruit relationally, right? Between a husband and wife, you know, in, in some sort of committed relationship. Lust is the enemy of contentment. So what lust does is it tells us that we're not happy. That there's something else. That I need something else. That there's something else better, that there's the grass on the other side is greener, right? That, that there's, there's more joy to be found. There's more, more satisfaction to be found. There's more experience to be found. And that's the enemy sliding into our lives and telling us that there's something more than what I've established, this quality that I've given you, the relationship at which I've established with you, that there's something else, another substance, another element that needs to be added to that. That's not God telling us that. That's the enemy telling us that. And what it does is it takes a poor quality substance, adding it to a quality substance, and begins to distort the quality of what we have. And so he tells us there that the enemy of lust, I mean, the, the lust is the enemy of contentment. Because lust doesn't see value in contentment. It only sees value in constant consumption, and it never offers full satisfaction. Romans 8.13 speaks to this to a certain degree. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So the flesh, a lot of times lust and the flesh are kind of mingled together, right? This, this idea that the flesh being our earthly desires, he says that if you live according to what you feel, what you think you want, says you will die. But if by the Spirit, if you're being fueled, if you're being cultivated, if you're being grown by the Spirit of God that He provides to us in Christ Jesus, He says, you, it, it, but if by the Spirit, you put to death the, the deeds of the body, you will live. And so we can't put to death the deeds of the body by ourselves. that we need the Spirit of God to help us. And so that's what's beautiful about what Jesus is doing here is He's not telling you you have to deal with these things. You have to deal with the desires of your heart. You have to deal with these things that your flesh are drawing you towards, that you have to deal with these things on your own. He says, no, I've provided you the Spirit of God to empower you, to instruct you, to lead you in these paths that you need to be a better husband to be a better wife, to be a better dad, to be a better mom, to be a better uh, church member, to be a better worker, to be a better friend, whatever it is that we need to do that is being overtaken by the spirit of lust in our lives that is constantly grasping for bigger and better and trying to add to a quality product but only grabbing a hold of poorer products and adding to that is clouding up and destroying what God has given us. 
He tells us that lust is the enemy of contentment. Listen, and contentment is not complacency. Contentment is being satisfied with God's blessings and not seeking anything more or greater than that. Lust, but the thing is, lust is not limited to sexual desire like we've been talking about. We lost in many ways in, in lacking our contentment, right? We lost after comforts. We lust after control. We lust after power. We lust after money. We lust after popularity and acceptance and social standards. We lust after these things in our lives. And what it's doing is it's robbing us of the quality of our relationship to God because we're reaching out for these other substances. And so he's telling us this in a broader illustration that even if you're not in the context of a relationship, you are as a Christian in the context of a relationship with God and that there is a very strong possibility that we could very well be lusting after other things other than God for joy, for fulfillment, for value, for identity. And it's very likely that we may be in those spaces. And so for us, we have to be able to be challenged by this concept. So then the next question is, how do we get victory over it? How do we get victory? We get victory, and the second thing this morning will be this. What I believe Jesus is instructing on here is we gain victory by taking control. Now, I'm not saying taking control out of God's hands. But taking control in a sense of the things that we have control of. God has allowed us some freedoms. God has given us some responsibilities. That man, I wish... Guys, I'm telling you as, as for myself. I wish that there would be some things that I could just be like, God, just fix this. Just make this right. Lord, take this temptation away. Take this sinful nature away. Take this thing that I constantly fall into away. Take my failures away. Just make it all right. Make everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm leading, everything that I'm a part of perfect. God, you just do it all. But God doesn't work like that. God says, you have some things. I've given you power. I've given you the, the ability. Now take the steps. Begin to implement some changes. Begin to do something. So what he begins to instruct on in the way that we first off name the enemy, the second thing is begin to take control. And what is he speaking of taking control of? He's calling us to take control of our appetites and our desires and to allow that to begin to translate into taking more control of our actions. Solomon writes this in Proverbs 25, 28. He says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. When we lack self-control, we make ourselves vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. You know, and this is the thing for us, especially in our day and age and the culture that we live in, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but we will never, we will never be led to paths of regaining control if we remain victims of our weaknesses. Right? Because this is the conversation, this is the things that people say, and this is the way that we justify it. In a lot of ways, we say, well, this is just how I am. This is just what I want. This is how I think. This is just, the, this is just my, uh, my you know, a cross to bear. This is just the struggle that I have, and so I'm just going to continue to have it and, and do my best in it. It's like, no, man, that is, that is the wrong mentality. If we constantly live in a victim mentality that we are a victim of our circumstances or victim of our weaknesses or victims of our temptations or victims of our struggles, we'll never take active steps because we'll be complacent where we are, we'll be settled where we are, we'll be used to where 
where we are and we'll completely miss the beauty of what God is offering us. Because listen, God is never taking something away from us to give us something lesser. He is leading us away from the lesser to give us something quality. Where we fall into it is we're reaching out for the poor substances, adding it to the quality of what God has given us. And then we, 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 we begin to see that. We begin to grow in that. And so he's telling us that we take control. We begin to not be victims anymore. We begin to see the Spirit of God working in us, enabling us to do what he has called us to and to take the steps that he's called us to take. And so what does he begin to say? In verse 29 through 30, in verse 29 specifically, he says this. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. You know, and I've heard this talked about a lot of different ways in churches. And, and, and you know, I, I, think, I think a lot of times in churches we, we can oversimplify things to a certain extent and then we can overcomplicate things to a certain extent. And, and I believe what Jesus is really trying to tell us here and the thing that we have to understand, you know, Jesus lays out a very graphic picture in both of these examples. Tear out your eye, cut off your hand, like seems very graphic, very morbid. And so does he mean this literally? Absolutely not. You know, a common, uh, a common way of, that the Bible was written, in, in a lot of ways it was written with some hyperbole, which is an exaggeration, right? And so what Jesus is saying here is using this hyperbole, this exaggeration, to communicate the aggressive warfare we must wage on sin and its sources in our lives. He's wanting us to understand, like, this is vital. This is important. This is going to be aggressive. This is going to be difficult. Like, there's a lot of elements to it. He's not saying it's going to be simple because, I mean, I don't know about you, but like I can barely pull like a splinter out of my hand without flinching. Right. I mean, I'm not going to say I cry or anything like that. I'm scared of it, but like I don't like to get my blood drawn. Like I don't like those things. I can't fathom attempting to literally remove a limb. Right. Or to tear my eye from my skull. I mean, it, it, it sounds violent. Right. It sounds difficult. Sounds scary. And so I believe Jesus is communicating a lot of that in this. He's like, listen, I understand that it's going to be difficult, but it has to happen. Why? Because then he continues on. He says, because you'd rather lose one of your members than for your whole body to be tossed into hell or Gehenna. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago, that Gehenna was a place where they literally brought their garbage and they set it on fire and it stayed a constant, it stayed lit constantly. I mean, literally a dumpster fire. He says, we would rather do that than end up living amongst a dumpster fire within our lives because we have neglected to acknowledge our sinful desires. So he says, he's painting this picture. You know, I read a quote this week that said this, Mutilation will not serve the purpose. It may prevent the outward act, but it will not extinguish the desire. So it's got to be different than like, you know, I've heard it talked about before. Like, you know, if, if, this, if, your, sin, if your sin issue is, is something that is related to your phone, then get rid of your phone. Or if it's related to television, get rid of your television. You know, that's like the removing of your eye or whatever. And there may be some truth to that to a certain extent. That may be part of the process. But it's deeper than that, right? Because if the intent is there, if the desires are there, sin will find a way. It will find its way to the surface if it's left untamed, if it's left without being dealt with, if there's desires in there that we're not facing. 
Because for a lot of us, there's a lot of things within our lives that we, we have and that we hold or that we keep tucked away and that we don't see as significant or we don't see as big issues or we don't see as affecting us or anybody else, right? But I love this verse in Proverbs six twenty seven. It says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? That's the thing about lustful intents or the desires of sin within our lives, if we don't face them, they don't go away. They stay there until they find the path of least resistance. They find that moment of weakness. They find that moment of uh, of lack of clarity or of doubt, of fear, whatever it might be. It finds the path of least resistance and it exposes itself. Leads us to sinful activities. And then like I said, then it becomes a norm or we become, we become accustomed to it. But like, like Solomon says here, man, can you carry that close to you long without getting burned? And I love how he says this here. He says, he says, you know, if it causes you to sin, if it causes you to sin, this phrase here, it means to entrap or to entice, which is, that's what these things do to us, right? And I love that he starts with eyes here because the eyes are the windows to our minds, to our hearts, to our spirits. You know, it, 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 our eyes are how we view things, not only like physically, but even uh, mentally and emotionally. Our eyes are kind of the window at which we experience the world, how we see the world. And so in a lot of ways, he's speaking of our perspective, how we view the world, how we view people, which completely relates when we talk about lustful intentions and adulterous relationships. Because if we view someone, a man or a woman, as a product to be consumed, then that is a, a, a representation of our vision of how we are viewing them. And so he's telling us, he starts with the eyes. He says, you need to get your perspective right. We need to fix how we see things, how we see the world, how we see the, the things around us. Because if we want to retake control of our actions, we have to start with our perspective because our vision, our vision is made of our visual concentration, right? What we visualize, what we see, what we allow in, it affects the way that we act, the way that we live, the way that we talk and the way that we navigate. Our fixation, church, our fixation dictates our concentration and our concentration will affect our actions. Because the thoughts within themselves aren't wrong. But it's the untamed lusts of our heart, the desires within us, that will inevitably translate into action is what Jesus is speaking of. And we need to get there. We need to get to the lustful intentions of our heart because inevitably they're going to destroy us. We need to see the things we're craving for. We need to see and be honest about the things we're longing for. We need to be honest for the spaces at which we are just grasping for. And he, what he's encouraging us to do here is he's encouraging us to perform a sense of a spiritual surgery to correct our vision and remove the way we previously viewed things. Because our vision affects our thoughts. And he tells us that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 10.5. He says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Psalm 19, 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart or our thoughts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 119, 37, he says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give my life in your ways. Psalm 25, 15, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Listen, 
And for us, like I said, it's so much more than just what we see and what happens around us. Because the world's always going to be a certain way. There's always going to be certain things within our vision, right? Within our visual field, uh, physically and mentally, right? Because we live in a very... in a, in a a very visually stimulating world. I mean, and we live in a very sexualized world. We live in a world that throws things out there and is very comfortable with things a particular way. Those things aren't going away. So if we can't manipulate the things that are out there, where do we need to focus? And that's what Jesus is talking about. He says, listen, the world around you is not going to change. The focus has to be here. Which that's what Jesus says in the beginning he wants anyway. He says, listen, I'm not, I'm not concerned so much about your offerings. I don't, I don't need your offerings. I want your heart. I want your commitment. I want your determination. I want your love. I want, I want, I want what you truly hold, what truly motivates you. I want what truly drives you. I want what truly cultivates your desires. Because unless Jesus has and we have given over what truly cultivates our desires, then everything out here is going to cultivate that. Everything out here is going to control that. So he says, you know, he says, pluck out your, pull, tear, tear out your eye, get rid of it. If your vision is skewed, he says, begin to, to begin to take control of it, deal with it. Then he talks about in verse 30, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You know, the right hand typically is considered the dominant hand of action, the dominant hand of control. He says, listen, it would be better for you in this capacity, he says, to get rid of this. this you know, and that's the second half of that. The first half of that is fixing our perspective. The second half of that is beginning to take control of our action, how we respond. What are we doing? You know, that's the external part. That's not where we start. We can't start at the external even though God does want to see changes in the external, that's not where we have to start. We have to start here. Start in the heart. We have to begin and then move to our perspective and how we view and see things. Then we begin to deal with our actions, with our, you know, the right hand being the dominant hand of action. And it's going to cost us. It's going to, it's going to be something. And I love Matthew 18. Jesus elaborates on this a little bit more. And he says this in, in Matthew 18, verses 8 through 9. He says, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He says, It is better for your entire life to be crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. In verse 9, he says, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And so what he's saying there is he's saying it would be better to be lacking something here than to be complete by the world's standards. It would be better to be lacking something within our earthly experience to be, to be to, for, especially by others' perspective, to be, to be missing out on something, right? To be lacking something, to be needing more. He says it would be better for you to be perceived as limping or lame in this world than to feel like you have everything the world could give you but be consumed by lustful intent. To be consumed by the flesh. And so listen... For us as Christians, if we choose to follow Christ and choose to live our lives in a certain way, and listen, this is not a life of perfection. What I'm t t telling you about tonight, is, I mean, this morning, is not a life of perfection. 
This is imperfect people seeking a perfect God. And I'm right along with you as I'm reading this. I'm learning. I'm being instructed on how I need to step and take steps in my life. Listen, all of us need this. And so the beautiful thing about this is we take these steps together. And what I love about God is when God is removing, He's removing to gain. God is never keeping us from the best available to us. He is always putting us in the direction of the best, of the greatest experience that he has, that this world has for us to experience. I love this hymn from a hymn writer. His name is Cecil Alexander. He wrote this. He says, Jesus calls us from the worship of the vain world's golden store, from each idol that would keep us saying, Christian, love me more. And that's, that's the point of all this. When Jesus talks about anger, when he talks about lust and the adulterous nature of our hearts, whether it's the relationship between a man or a woman or our, our adulterous relationships and our lustful attempts to the things around us in the world, whether it's money, power, control, acceptance, uh, a particular view that people have of us, whatever it might be. This is all Jesus calling us away from worshiping those things and just calling us that the fix for it, the ultimate fix for it, is to love him more, to know him more. The more we know Christ, the more we love Christ and understand how He loves us, the more apt we will be to take control, to take those steps away. Because listen, we don't do it from our own strength. Any strides that God leads us through is not from our own strength, but it's from the Spirit of God within us leading us. Listen, Jake is not that strong. I'm pretty faulty in a lot of ways, and I feel like I constantly have to apologize for that. But God isn't. God is not weak. God is not faulty. And so my pursuit of being what God has called me to be is not going to be within my own strength, but me constantly just stumbling towards Him. Because that's what life is. Life is one stumble after another. The important thing isn't that we never stumble. The thing is that our stumbling is in constant motion towards Him and loving Him and worshiping Him and understanding Him to the best of our abilities. Church, living the Christian life is and has to be more than behavior modification. It's got to be more than just don't do this, right? Because we know in a lot of ways what we shouldn't do. Listen, there's, there's no situation at which we sin that we don't already know we shouldn't do this thing because there's something built within us that tells us that. We know what we're not supposed to do. We have to understand why we shouldn't do it. And we have to understand the source at which motivates the reaction. And it's understanding who Christ is. Understanding what Christ has done. Understanding what Christ has given. Understanding what God has done for His creation. Church, we lean that way because it is, you know, we lean the way of behavior modification and churches do this because it's more measurable. It's easier to see the do's and don'ts, but it's not the eternal way God has called us to deal with our faults and our sins. We must cut off. And this is where Jesus is speaking. And, and as the band goes ahead and makes their way up, we're going to worship together this morning as we end off in our benediction time. But it is us cutting off what feeds our lust. We have to take those steps. Cut off what feeds our lust and replace it with a love for Christ. Replace it with a love for Christ. We have lustful desires for something more, for more joy, for more happiness, for more acceptance, for more.
We're trying to navigate spaces of depression and anxiety. We're trying to navigate spaces of feeling unaccepted, feeling like we don't have a part, feeling like our spouses don't love us, feeling like our kids don't love us. We're trying to figure out life. How do we do that? We love Christ more and he brings clarity to all that and he begins to show us, listen, you've been trying to supplement those desires with lesser lustful things on the outside and you have not found the fulfillment in it. He says, listen, Christ has that. If we'll love him more, if we'll find him more, he says, I will show you. I will show you what it is you're looking for, what you're yearning for, what you need. So all of this, church, is us. Learning to tame the enemy of contentment. Learning to tame the enemy of contentment, and that is lust. Seeking fulfillment outside of the spaces God has blessed us for. That is lust. Seeking fulfillment outside of the spaces that God has provided us for. The blessings He's given us. Needing a better family, needing a better spouse, needing a better situation, needing better control, needing more money, more power, whatever that lustful intent is that is driving us away from Christ. Christ says, just like the psalmist said, Christian, love me more. Love me more. The writer of Hebrews says this, that we do this by doing this. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. I love that he gives us the reason why we look to Christ. I love that he gives us the reason. Because he says, for the joy that was set before him. What was before Christ? What was ahead of him? It was the cross, it was death. It was shame. It was pain. It was emotions. It was crying. It was, it was agony. That was before him. And what did he find before him? For my behalf and for yours, he found joy in that. Why? Because what he was going to do for us, how he was going to rescue us from the shame of our sin, how he's going to rescue us from the hurt of the world around us. He says, for the joy that was set before him, he did what? He endured the cross. Thank God that Jesus took that cross on, that he marched up that hill, that he endured the nails, he endured the spear, that he endured the death, that we were destined to die for what? To replace the lustful intents of our hearts with an understanding of his love for him for us to understand what true love is. To understand the true love of our Savior is to be true love to our spouse. To understand the true love of our Savior is to be true love to our children. To understand the love of our Savior is to be true love to the world around us who desperately needs the true love of Christian people. It says, for the joy set before me endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the picture of shame that the cross may have presented to people. It says, I don't care what they think. I don't care what the people are yelling about me. I don't care that you think I'm crazy, that they thought that he was a lunatic, that they thought that he was worthless, that, that, that they thought he was lowly. He says, I don't care about the shame of that. I despise the shame for what? To be seated at the right hand of the throne of God and to speak on our behalf. To say, this one's worth saving. We've got a space at the table for that one. That one... That one deserves the life the Spirit gives. That one deserves, we can give that one the Spirit of God to help them navigate those situations. God sits on the right hand of the Father on our behalf and we should be ever, ever grateful for that. So if you would, would you stand with us this morning? And we're gonna worship, we're gonna seek after God. 
Listen, we've set up some chairs behind this curtain just to give a space of, of privacy, of comfort. If you need to go and maybe you sit alone and you seek the Lord. Maybe you want to seek someone else and you want to ask them to pray for you. Man, bring them back there. Garen will be back there. Some others may be back there. Some, just find someone, go and pray if you need someone to pray. And like I said, but maybe it's just you. You just need a time when you're on, you go and you pray and you seek God this morning. Otherwise, I encourage you to sing with us. Worship God as we pursue this idea of what it means to dismiss the lustful intents of our heart and begin to seek Jesus for who he is and what he's doing, what he can do in our lives. So church, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you that when you're calling us to step away from the lesser things, the adulterous relationships we have with the world around us, God, that you're not calling us away to find emptiness. God, you're calling us away to find more fulfillment in who you are and what you do. Father God, I pray this morning that you would allow us and give us the courage that we need to take confident steps of courage in the spaces you've called us to. God, that you would help us to see the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ. That you would let us to see what it is that he's done and what it is that he offers us. God, let us know you deeper. Let us know you more. God, let us just, Lord, like the psalmist says, let us love you. Father, I pray that we would be challenged. Lord, I pray that we would be open to what it is you have for us. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Church, sing with me.